Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. So Cass, for more than 250 episodes, our (laughs) show opener, I know, right? Our show opener has always referred to the some 7 billion of us humans that currently inhabit this planet. And if we keep making this show well into the future, well, we're going to have to update that stat. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> right? Uh, okay. So don't mind me if I future trip a little bit here. But one projected model that I looked at recently of human population growth predicts that by 2050, the world's population could potentially swell to 10 billion people. Holy moly. Yeah, I know. So within our lifetimes, we might just see the citizenry of planet Earth grow by something like 40%. And of course, this begs the question, will our planet be able to provide all of the life-sustaining resources necessary? Well, historically, many of these resources have been derived, as we all know, from animals that have served as both a major source of food and clothing for humans. The 60 billion land animals on the earth today would need to increase to 100 billion April to support the population growth to 10 billion humans. And as we have discussed before in the show, large-scale industrial farming practices of livestock are a significant source of man-made greenhouse gas emissions nearly 15%. The connection is clear. Eating less meat, or as I advocate, no meat at all, (laughs) and using less animal-derived products for our clothing can help lower greenhouse gas emission and have an incredibly positive impact on our planet in more ways than one. Yes. So what are some of the alternatives in terms of clothing production? Well, for the last hundred years or so, man-made synthetic fibers rose to prominence as a cheaper alternative to natural fibers like cotton or linen. But slow your roll, people, because synthetic textiles containing acrylic, polyester, nylon, and spandex, well, did you know that these fibers are actually derived from petroleum? And this clearly is not the answer either. So it kind of goes without saying that the extraction of these resources by big oil and gas, well, they have also wreaked havoc on the planet. It is little wonder then that today's guest espouses the, quote, need to transition away from both animal-derived and fossil-derived materials and chemicals that are co-produced along the petrochemical supply chain, end quote. Today, we are so pleased to be joined by Andres Forgax, the founder of Modern Meadow, to learn more about how biofabrication might just solve some of these problems and in the process shape fashion's future. Andres, welcome to Dressed. Andres, a warm welcome to Dressed. April, great to be here and speaking with you. Yeah, we we are super excited to chat with you today. And I actually first learned of Modern Meadows several years ago from a friend of mine who is actually a past guest on Dressed, uh, Joshua Ketcher, who is a designer for the vegan menswear line Brave Gentleman. And I'm really looking forward to sharing with our listeners today exactly what Modern Meadow has been up to and also learning a little bit more where biofabrication is today. 
But uh, before we get to that, I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about your formal education, because if my internet sleuthing is correct, it wasn't necessarily originally in science or tech. That is correct, April. You know, I, I wish I could tell you that um, I had the foresight um, in a prior century and a prior millennium to study biofabrication. Uh, or, or frankly, that even existed as a field. Um, it didn't. And what I can tell you is that I've been interested in the natural sciences for a long time. Uh, my uh, father is a scientist. My mother is a doctor. It was around the dinner table as I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And I was a science nerd in school, in uh, middle school and high school. I worked in bio labs and uh, you know, I very much thought I was going to become a scientist. And then I went to a liberal arts university and I fell in with the social science crowd. <laughs> so I did pursue my studies in pre-med, right? I, I, I studied biology and physics and chemistry, uh, fulfilled all those requirements. And I thought I was going to become a doctor, but I didn't want to be the kind of doctor that all they knew was um, the, the, the technical aspects of their field. I wanted to be really well-rounded and that's what a liberal arts education can give you. So I studied the social sciences, politics, philosophy, and economics. And basically there was not a subject in uh, college that I was like not curious about or interested in. Uh, social sciences, uh, natural sciences, art. And I was also active or almost hyperactive in extracurriculars. Uh, running student clubs and whatnot. And maybe none of those pursuits individually led me to what I'm doing today. But what I'm doing today is a product of interdisciplinary fields coming together. Or interdisciplinary thinking, really. Interdisciplinary thinking. And that was basically the pattern of my uh, of my college education. It was, uh, it, it was studying how these various disciplines can come together, how politics, philosophy, economics can come together, uh, natural sciences, how that can become uh, part of the equation as well. And basically, I just love moving horizontally and connecting people and ideas to action. Yeah. And I think you also studied business a little bit later on in grad school, if I'm right. That's correct. So I, I jokingly say that I, I study these grandiose fields, right? Like uh, um, uh, the sciences and, you know, pre-med and social sciences. And then I jokingly say that I fell in with the wrong crowd and I ended up on law. <laughs> you know? And so I did, I did start my, my career in finance. There's a reason for that. Uh, and the reason for that is that I had a very international upbringing. I was born in Budapest. I grew up on both sides of the Iron Curtain. My grandfather was a diplomat, and I, and I really did think I wanted to have an international career. And the great thing about the 1990s is that an international career no longer meant just working for the State Department or in, um, you could certainly do that in public service, but increasingly, uh, the private sector was becoming global as well. And one of the most global aspects of the private sector was finance. So my first um, experience working in finance after a couple tours of duty working um, as an intern for the State Department actually was in Budapest. You know, I worked with, uh, with Citibank um, in Hungary as an intern, and that ended up morphing into starting my career in business back in New York. And that business background, I would imagine, served you quite well with uh, one of your first ventures with your father, Organovo. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think Organovo really kind of sets the stage to what came next. That is correct. So I've been pursuing a business career since I, I graduated from college. 
initially in finance and even in finance, it was in, um, in technology innovation in finance back when the first dot-com wave was happening. I basically was employee number one on a big dot-com initiative that we were building in Citigroup. Then I went to business school and then I, I went to McKinsey for consulting uh, because I felt that that was a way for me to broaden my business toolkit. But even at McKinsey, you're working on some really interesting problems. And I had a chance to work with both uh, companies that were very innovative in biopharma, biotechnology. And I also had a chance to work with academic medical centers on how they can accelerate their innovations from the laboratory in academia to real world impact. How do you get from the laboratory bench to the patient bedside faster? Because there's all kinds of great innovations that bubble up in academia that, that languish. Mm-hmm. Or that that kind of uh, that never make it past the valley of death, and I had a chance to work on some of these projects at McKinsey, and um, and I was fascinated by that. Right, having grown up with a with a, a scientist for a father, I was I was fascinated about how do you accelerate science becoming um, commercial, and while I was doing this work in in consulting, I actually saw that the work my father was doing in academia was an example of some really interesting science that deserved to be translated um, into impact. At the time, he was a physicist who had come to biology later on in his career. And he was one of the pioneers in applying the physics lens to explain why things were happening in biology. Why is it that organs form the way they do? How is it that an embryo develops the way it does. And rather than just using chemistry as an explanation or biological processes to explain away why something happens, he was actually able to use the vocabulary of physics um, and the frameworks of physics to do that. And it turns out there's actually a lot of physics that happens in the body. Wow. And he was doing a lot of really interesting research at the time while I was studying this translational science bit at McKinsey. And he got um, a huge grant from the federal government on integrative research in biology. He published a textbook on the biological physics of the developing embryo. And he filed some patents on something that seemed kind of crazy at the time, but on 3D bioprinting. And it seemed to me like this is Star Trek. Right. (laughs) Um, uh, Star Trek uh, technology. But I was so intrigued that I, I, I pulled together some really smart people that I knew. And we started having discussions about it about whether there's a there there or what could be done with it. And over time, these Sunday night discussions morphed into us deciding to start a company. And that's what led to Organovo. So what exactly is bioprinting, 3D bioprinting, for any of our listeners who might not be familiar with this term? Sure. So 3D printing at this point has become much more well understood, right? It's about being able to print not just in two dimensions, but layer by layer to be able to create a three-dimensional structure. And 3D printing has had now a multi-decade history. We're used to seeing things getting 3D printed in plastic and even in metal. And with biology, it's this it's similar principles, basically through printing layer by layer in three dimensions, except for the ink is not plastic. The ink, uh, in our case, were cell aggregates, and not just of one cell type, but multiple cell types, being deposited layer by layer into a hydrogel. Mm -hmm. And a hydrogel would 
basically create or form the negative space. It would be the structure that holds the tissues together while uh, the the while it's it's being laid out in three dimensions. So the 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 hydrogel basically fills um, fills the voids. The difference between three D printing with biology and three D printing with plastic or metal or some other uh, material is that the three D printing is just one step of the process. Biology is is amazing because it it actually can self organize and it can mature beyond the deposition of the material in 3D. So 3D printing, you're basically not 3D printing a finished product. You're 3D printing something that then can mature into something else by using biological processes. Um, like you know the way organs form or the way an embryo develops by harnessing those same forces, you're basically creating the um, embryonic precursor right. to what you want to make. And then you're creating an environment in which the cells can sort themselves out and self-organize to become the tissue that you want them to become, such as kidney, liver, skin tissue, heart tissue, et cetera. Which was kind of the impetus for Organovo, right? So how was Organovo using 3D bioprinting? So the big idea, right? Like the big blue sky idea that got us all really excited in the very beginning was, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could 3D print human tissues that could eventually be implanted into uh, patients and help mitigate the organ shortage? Mm Uh, there's not enough kidneys or livers available uh, each year to patients in need. And wouldn't it be amazing if, if you didn't require somebody to die every time somebody needed a transplant, right? And that's still the long-term vision for um, a lot of this field of regenerative medicine, mm-hmm. right? That you can actually create tissues that can be implanted into patients and can serve a therapeutic purpose. But that's the, the long-term goal. How do you break that down? And in the case of Organova, one of the first applications we went after was, well, what if we can initially create human tissue models that can actually help accelerate drug testing and drug development? Because pharmaceutical companies are always developing new compounds or new innovations that they need to test in a whole bunch of models before it goes into human clinical trials. And those models are often just like a petri dish of loose human cells that have no structural biology or they're like an animal model, which is not a human being, right? Testing an Alzheimer's drug in a mouse is not the same as, you know, doesn't tell you about how it'll behave in human biology. But what if you could actually create models of human biology in three dimension that recapitulate the structural biology of of human tissue? And then you can use that to accelerate uh, drug testing and drug development. So you're what it is that passes those hurdles becomes more likely to be successful later on when it's actually being tested in patients. And the cosmetics industry is employing some of this tissue for testing. Is that correct? Well, that's absolutely right. So one of our applications in the early days of of Organovo was to create skin tissue models that could be used by some cosmetic companies to also test for the safety and the efficacy of some of their innovations. And it's funny you should say that because that was one of the touch points that led us to thinking about applications for biofabrication beyond medicine or medical research. Because if you can actually make skin tissue models 
that are good enough for cosmetic companies to develop new, you know, beauty products. And if you can create models of muscle tissue that could be, you know, used to model heart tissues, for example, is it crazy to think about using biofabrication to make animal products for consumer applications without animals? And that was the founding idea behind Modern Meadow. Like, hey, if we can make skin, can we make leather? And if we can make uh, muscle tissue, can we make meat? Now that was very early on the, the provocation that led us to create Modern Meadow. Since then, there's been a lot of evolution in our technology and in our business strategy, but that was the provocation that led us to say, hey, there's opportunities for biofabrication more broadly, the toolkit beyond medicine. And what if we could actually take this into consumer applications as well? And Modern Meadow is uh, now celebrating its 10th anniversary, yes? We will be soon, yeah. So on paper, it'll be the 10th anniversary in a, in a month or two. And then in terms of actually getting like lab operations and people going that we're, we're nine years old, but we'll, next year we'll be 10 years old there. Yeah, but hard to think. It's been nearly a decade. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> We have ever so briefly mentioned bioleathers before on the podcast, but for any of our listeners that are just now learning about this, you've already kind of detailed the process of biofabrication, but what are the benefits of biofabrication when it comes to the planet? Well, let me be clear. What I've described was relevant for Organovo and for bioprinting in a medical context. That approach is one example of biofabrication. Mm -hmm. It is not the way you would go about it for consumer products and consumer applications. Tell us more. (laughs) We're here for it. (laughs) What works for medicine is not the most scalable or effective way to make consumer products. So I would say that um, at Modern Meadow, we practice biofabrication as well, but a completely different form of it. Right? And first of all, let's define what biofabrication is. Biofabrication broadly means you're building with biology. And I would nuance that even further to say that you're building with biology, but to unlock new functionality and new performance with biology. Right? So if you think of biofabrication, I like to think of it as being on a, on a continuum. Like biology is a source of endless inspiration, right? You can have bio-inspired design, right? That's when you kind of look uh, at nature and, it, and, and, and you just get inspired by the aesthetics of it and use that in your design, right? To create patterns on, on textiles, for example. You can use biomimicry in engineering when you actually look at the functionality of nature to get inspiration for how to design things, right? How to design support structures and buildings or the wings of, of aircraft, right? That can be inspired by examples of of engineering principles we see in nature, right? Beyond this, uh, over the last couple decades, there's been a hugely active field of using biotechnology to actually make replacements for other products that would be sourced in less sustainable ways, right? And and so we've had a whole industry of bio-based drop-ins, you know, the molecules that you could make other ways, you could make from petro, uh, petrochemicals, for example, but you can also make them with biology and you could do them in a cleaner way or biofuels, right? Where you could derive it from dead dinosaurs, you know, by pumping it from the ground, or you could actually 
use crops as a as a as a feedstock and convert that into fuels, right? More more green fuels. But biofabrication goes even beyond this. It's about like, hey, let's build with the building blocks of biology. Let's work with whether it's proteins or carbohydrates or whatnot, but let's actually create new functionality and new properties. How is it that we can expand the design space using biology as a building block? And that's what we do at Modern Meadow. We Our focus has been on proteins. Mm -hmm. How is it that we can source and design and produce proteins and use them in a range of applications? Proteins are amazing because they're one of the most fundamental building blocks of nature. And an example of a protein that's very important in your body is collagen, right? Collagen is is the uh, the most abundant protein in your body. It's the main protein in your skin. It's what it's the glue that holds your cells together. And one of the capabilities that we've developed at Modern Meadow is the ability to produce collagen that's not derived from animals and to be able to modify that. And, and the reason we did that is because we felt that it was a very important capability to design materials that would be based on collagen. Leather is a collagen-based material. And then the, what, what we realized is that collagen is one example of a protein that works, but you can actually source other proteins from plants that also give you the same functionality and properties. And so now today at Modern Meadow, we can produce some proteins that we can brew, produce them through fermentation, right? Like a, like a brewery, or we can derive proteins from agriculture, by working from plants. But either way, these proteins then become our hero ingredients in creating a range of materials and textiles that are not just seeking to replace products in the market. So the goal is not just to create a leather alternative, but also can create new innovations, new materials that have new properties, new features, uh, that can get brands and consumers excited as well, all the while being more sustainable and being you know, scalable and cost-effective. One of the things that is very captivating to me is, is the dye process that you use. Or I don't even know if I, do I, am I using the word right, uh, the word dye correctly? Because you do color these materials and the manner in which you do so is so much more sustainable. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that's that's a great example of how you can actually create something new or enhance uh, the property of something with biology. So it's not just about creating a me too product. It's actually about creating something that that does something better or beyond what is what is conventionally possible. So most synthetic materials work with pigments, mm-hmm. not dyes. Right. And pigments are, for the most part, sit on the surface of materials, and uh, they create a very flat and very saturated color expression. Dyes, there's a lot of textiles and a lot of materials that you're just not able to dye. But by working with proteins and having proteins work as a part of our bioalloy technology, which is where our proteins come in combination with bio-based polymers to create our our materials, we're able to get dyes to bind one-to-one with proteins. And that means we can introduce color all the way through in our materials. So it's not just on the surface. 
So you get real color depth and you get a richness of color expression without getting the color to rub off, right? So you don't have to worry about that as well. And you can do this in a much more sustainable way because you have that one-to-one relationship between dyes and proteins. You don't need to just bathe your materials in a whole lot of dyes and have dyes run off into you know, waste streams. You can be far more efficient about how you apply dyes to materials. Mm-hmm. Or another opportunity is you can actually make materials and then apply dyes after the fact to be able to do piece dyeing or post dyeing of the materials. So this introduces more efficiency. Mm-hmm. It introduces a more sustainability and it allows the materials that we develop with our partners to be better looking uh, than what would be possible with more conventional synthetics. Yeah. You have, a, you have a lot more control over the product. That's correct. And other examples of properties that, that can be enhanced are, are things like breathability, right? We're introducing proteins allows us to control the breathability um, of the materials or frankly, durability, right? Because it's all well and good to make materials uh, more sustainably, but if they don't last very long, well, that's not very sustainable. But if you can actually enhance the the durability, the wearability of, of a material in the application so the product doesn't fall apart, it's bio-based and longer lasting. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a real win-win, right? So we can make materials that are more durable, better color expression, more breathable. So performance is key and be more sustainable and be more um, accessible and scalable. Yeah. And I think you have plans to launch an entire family of different biofabricated products, which you create from these bio alloys, which you just mentioned. I'd like to ask you about Z. Is it pronounced Z or is it pronounced Zai? So there's still work being done on what exactly we're going to name the baby. (laughs) So this is where, you know, I just passed the baton to my successor as CEO a couple months ago. And we're super excited about the technology platform. We're excited about its industrialization. We're excited about the partners that we're working with. We're excited about all the features and functions that we're going to really be able to lead with but there's still work to be done about, we know we're gonna call the capability bioalloy, right? So bioalloy is the category of this technology. Um, what the exact name is, I think there's, there's still work being done on, on what, we call the, what we call this baby. Because <laughs> look, in the past in Modern Meadow, we've given a brand name to our, our technologies when they weren't yet accessible uh, to consumers or to brands. And that was great because people were able to kind of call it something, but no one had an experience of that yet. So now we're thinking through just how do we make the, the, the brand and the technology kind of be experienced by the consumer kind of more, more at the same time. So the product that I'm referencing, the baby in question, is your product, which you all describe as being inspired by leather. I'm curious, how is it similar to the leather? And then how does it differ? Yes. I, I would say a good way to think about it is that it's got, so there, there are applications of our technology that you're describing that are more in the leather alternative category. A good way to think about this is that it's got properties that are both of traditional leather and of synthetic leather, but without the downsides of both, right? I mean, look, let's face it. Traditional leather 
and synthetic leather both have long histories and they're both incredibly successful products and there's a lot to be liked, but there's also shortcomings, right? You know, and, and I don't need to, um, you know, litigate that here. There's, you know, I've talked about it a long time and, and many people know the limitations of stuff that derives from livestock and also the limitations of stuff that derives from petrochemicals. What we're able to do here is we're able to create a bio-based alternative that can be manufactured through infrastructure that is similar to how synthetics would be made, right? So you can make it on rolls very efficiently, but it doesn't derive from fossil fuel-based synthetics. It's bio-based ingredients and bio-based polymers, and it can have differentiating properties. So unlike conventional synthetics, we can have better durability, better color expression, better breathability. And unlike traditional leather, you can actually make the materials more reliable in shape, size, and quality, right? Um, and you don't have these supply chains that extend from the farm to, you know, the tannery to the, the cut and sew operations that are, that are so fairly inefficient. So, so think of it as like the love child of these, of these two worlds but with advantages relative to both. And because of all of these opportunities at different points in the process, it's so customizable that I'm sure many of the people that you're working with, the companies that you work with can come to you and say, I'm looking for something like this. Can you do it? And that's exactly right, which is why partnerships are so important. Because what we focus on at Modern Meadow is we're um, an innovation house. Mm-hmm. We have lots of scientists and engineers that are constantly developing new capabilities, but what we can't do as well as um, many of the p- people that are in the market and the institutions that have served the players in the market is to do that last, you know, the, the, the application development and the product development at the speed at which the, the field of fashion moves. So we are fortunate to be working with some amazing partners so that we can focus on developing the underlying capabilities and we can work with partners, to your point, who have a very good sense of how to apply color in a way that various brands would appreciate it, how to apply texture, how to, you know, how to continue to advance this technology in ways that are very relevant and fresh, right? Because the speed of innovation is going to be very key. I'm curious about um, what does end of life look like? for some of these products? Because we've talked about within sustainability, you know, circularity is, you know, the ultimate end goal. Yeah, I would say that end of life is often the trickiest part, right? There's there's three pillars to our uh, sustainability principles. So first of all, we wanna make sure that we, uh, we source all of our inputs from more sustainable sources, right? We are animal free, we move away from petrochemical sources, and we're very, very focused on climate impact mm-hmm. in terms of the inputs that go into our technologies. The next thing that we're focused on is ecosystem impacts, right? Making sure that while we're sourcing, uh, while the inputs are, are more sustainable, we're also mindful of the impact on water, land use, and eutrophication, right? So the runoff of fertilizers and how they affect you know, bodies of water. So, so it's important that, ecos- that we're also mindful of ecosystem impacts. And then the third pillar that we're, we're, we're looking constantly to optimize around is, is designing for both durability and end of life. And sometimes those two seem like they're at odds because the more you focus on 
um, making something biodegradable, the more it can come at the expense of durability. So for us, it's a tunable property. Our technologies, our inputs are bio-based. Protein biodegrades, right? You know, many of the inputs and the technologies that we work with, it comes from nature, it can end up in nature. But we're always trying to figure out how to best serve the application and also how to best serve end of life. And there are some applications where durability is key to sustainability, right? For example, you know, you buy furniture, you don't want it to kind of mold and biodegrade. Right. Uh, <laughs> right? So you want biodegradability to kind of happen when under the right conditions at the right point in time, right? Same thing, p- perhaps with a really beautiful handbag. You don't want to be able to put it down in the rain and then worry about it kind of forming mold on the bottom of it. Whereas if you're doing something where the, the, the life cycle of the product is shorter, especially, you know, single-use plastics, you want that to biodegrade. So for us, what I would say is biodegradability is a tunable property, but it's something that we have to tune depending on the application and the requirements of the, of the partner. And that's candidly something that I think a lot of these bio-based materials or innovations are all struggling with. Because you cannot compromise on the consumer experience. We don't want the product to fall apart. We don't want our shoes to only last a few months, right? We want them to wear well. But at the end of the day, we also don't want them to accumulate in a landfill, right? Or or to pollute oceans. So that's something that we know our technologies are tunable. We can make our, uh, the end of life for us be biodegradable. There's also ways that we can introduce loops where we can have circularity principles be embedded, but it's a multidimensional puzzle and we're also trying to solve for durability at the same time. You mentioned earlier that this all sounds like Star Trek, perhaps science fiction to some people, but this technology is here. It's happening. What are the issues that are currently preventing, for instance, the leather goods industries from really switching over to bio leathers at scale? Yeah. Well, look, what I will say is it it is happening and there's a lot of brands and partners that are engaged with, with, with us and with other emerging solution providers in this space. So what's exciting is that this is an emerging field and there's many flowers blooming. Mm-hmm. And right now, yes, we're at a time when there's a lot of hype and attention on some emerging technologies more than there is availability of product, right? Consumers, for the most part, have not yet experienced these innovations in their hand in the coming months, in the coming years, that's gonna change. As a company at Modern Meadow, we don't believe in talking about things until they're happening or imminently so, which is why we don't like to talk about the partners with which we work. um, And we don't like to talk about the products that are near market until it's imminent because we we, we just believe in in being real that way and not driving hype. But, But what I will tell you is it's happening technologies and innovations are being pulled through. One of the hurdles and why it's not happening instantaneously is because, well, first of all, these technologies need to work. They need to perform. They need to deliver something better to the consumer. And getting that right takes a lot of fiddle factor. So you need to to make sure that that, that that works. Then you also need to be able to produce these technologies at scale. 
So it's not enough to create uh, eight and a half by 11 inch samples. You can't make much with that, right? So you basically, you know, we spent much of last year and this year industrializing our technologies and running them by the thousands of square meters in, in production facilities. And that allows us to accelerate product development and accelerate our collaborations, right? So you need to be able to scale. Then you need to be able to engage your partners in product development and application development. And that takes time too. Mm -hmm. And then you need to be able to kind of produce and launch products. So there's a lot of lead time associated with each step. And of course, COVID didn't necessarily help all of this because uh, scaling up production at a time when supply chains were disrupted and people couldn't travel, you know, we were uh, doing tech transfer and production in facilities that we had not been able to visit, right? We were doing a lot of, a lot of work through Zoom. And I'm sure that affected um, everybody in the industry. So that's why, um, you know, stuff is happening for us and for others. But I would say that the next, uh, the coming months and the coming years are going to be where it's going to become more and more tangible and visible to consumers. Yeah. And you've mentioned some of the others working in this realm of biofabrication. And there are other companies out there creating other types of products. I'm wondering if you have any favorites. Yeah, I, I think what's what's exciting is that you're seeing more and more areas where innovation and biology is intersecting with the consumer experience, right? And it's no longer just the stuff of you know crazy medical. Um, it's it's the stuff of the consumer experience. Well, one really good example of this is in uh, plant-based uh, meat, right? You you see companies like uh, Beyond uh, Meat and Impossible Foods, and they've been able to bring you know ever better products to market using plant-based ingredients, yes. And in the case of Impossible Foods, also, you know, bio-based innovation. One of the things that's unique to uh, an Impossible Burger is that it actually has a, 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 you know, blood in it, but that doesn't come from animals, it comes from a, a yeast. It's produced in yeast, much like you would brew beer. And that's a great example of something that consumers are already experiencing and tasting uh, that is made with, you know, biology innovation. You know, another company that I like uh, and I've been involved in is um, doing this for dairy. They're producing uh, milk proteins that don't come from livestock. They, they are brewed, right? They're, they're produced in, in, in steel tanks rather than in, in, in farms. And that allows them to make these milk proteins in ways that, are, that don't involve uh, hormones or can be uh, you know, lactose-free in a cleaner way. And it's already showing up in products like ice cream and um, yogurts and cheeses and whatnot. So look, what's, what's, what's exciting is that there's a number of companies that are looking at like the cow <laughs> and all the things that can come out of the cow and figuring out how can we have enjoyable consumer experiences without relying on livestock and, and a technology that is fairly antiquated and resource intensive, right? And we're focused on the material side of that, but others are focused on the dairy and the meat and, and, and whatnot. And, and um, there's just going to be a whole bunch of other fields where uh, there's innovation to replace plastics, innovation to replace other animal products. Um, and it's all about figuring out how we can deliver better products with you know better sustainability and hopefully having um, you know uh, urgent impact on uh, climate. Yeah, absolutely. I have one last question for you. As someone who has already 
propelled us into the future in, in what promises to be such a life-changing way. I'm curious about your thoughts as to where the intersection of biofabrication and fashion specifically is headed next. Yeah, I mean, I have to say what's been exciting to me is that these two worlds, which when we started out seemed very far apart, have been increasingly coming together. So when we started Modern Meadow nearly 10 years ago, there were very few people who understood both worlds or who were in one world but had real appreciation for the other. And the world of fashion regarded R&D as something you do in a matter of months, working away in a design studio. It didn't think in terms of many, many, many years and working with deep science and innovation. And likewise, the world of, of biotechnology didn't really regard the world of fashion as being, a, um, it, it had no clarity in terms of how to really bring innovations to that world. And there were a few crazy people like, like me and some others who were trying to uh, bring those two worlds together. But what's been exciting is that in the last 10 years, certainly in the last two years, there's been an incredible acceleration of people who have an understanding or an appreciation of growth. So those two worlds are coming together. So one thing I would say is, I think in the 20th century, there was a lot of material innovation that came from petrochemicals, right? Polymers, right? It led to a, a whole active wear industries, you know, outdoor wear, sports, et cetera, right? Uh, and, and our household goods, there's plastic all, all around our households. And, you know, there's been a lot of benefit that came from that, you know, and, and yes, some environmental cost as well. I think we're on the cusp of another wave of innovation where we're seeing biology become a driver for innovation in materials in a whole range of ways. This is not just about creating products that are replacements or alternatives. These are about creating products that can also uh, bring new design possibilities, right? Entire new categories of, of materials. And what's exciting is that the world of fashion has an appreciation for material innovation in a way that is more pronounced than it was even five or 10 years ago. And you're seeing brands that are getting created that are new to the world brands, right? That have emerged really in the last couple of years that emphasize material innovation as a core part of their brand, right? They're built from the ground up with sustainability in mind and with innovation in materials in mind. And you're seeing established players that have, you know, 100 year plus histories that also recognize that they need to innovate because they're making sustainability commitments, because they want to bring uh, better experiences to their customers, but they recognize they can't do all of that in-house. And they don't have all the answers to how do you get the sustainability impact or the innovation without being able to partner with upstarts, you know, and, and, and innovators. So that that's I think what's exciting is you're going to see a whole wave of material innovation. You're going to see a lot of experimentation. You're going to see that from big brands. You're going to see that from startup brands. And you're going to see increasingly the importance of the technology innovators who were historically many degrees back in the supply chain. We didn't even talk about it. <laughs> but I think increasingly consumers want to know what something is made of, how it's made, where it comes from, and they actually want to celebrate the innovation, but in a way that's understandable and in a way where the benefit, yes, we care about the benefit of the planet, but also that the consumer experience itself is somehow enhanced. 
You know, from day one of this podcast, and we have something like more than 250 episodes produced at this point, but from day one, we have always emphasized the historic connection between fashion and technology. And, you know, what that word technology means morphs and changes over time, just inherent to technology itself. But those two things, which initially kind of seem antithetical, are actually very much inextricably wound up in each other. And what you're doing at Modern Meadow is such a sublime example of that. So thank you so much for joining us today. This was a really fascinating conversation. Thanks, April. And, and look, the, the, the symbiosis goes both ways. Technology and science needs the world of fashion to make it appealing and to make it approachable. Mm-hmm. And the world of fashion needs these new innovations, right, to bring new benefit and, and better sustainability uh, to the consumer. So it's, it is a, you know, it is a, a perfect kind of peanut butter and jelly combination. <laughs> I've been really enjoying over the last, uh, you know, recent years, seeing these worlds increasingly come together and develop common language. Thank you for joining us. This was great. Fantastic. Great speaking with you. Andres, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss all of the innovation that Modern Meadow is and promises to bring. April, I think I can speak for the both of us when I say that this is so exciting. It feels very much like a new dawn of technological progress, but one that actually considers the complexities of the relationship between Mother Nature and the animals, human and otherwise, that depend on her for survival. Yes. I cannot wait to see what the future holds in store for us on this front. You know, and just as a side note here, uh, before the pandemic, my partner and I were at a restaurant in our local neighborhood that we frequent often, and we decided to play this little game of taste test. And we ordered both a regular burger and also an impossible burger and then compared them side by side. Weird. (laughs) (laughs) So weird. I I have to say, I actually preferred the impossible burger. It was was indistinguishable for me from real meat. And I actually found it more delicious. And then also, I see quite frequently um, Beyond Meat products in all of my local grocery stores, so as Andres, you know, mentioned, I think we're going to be seeing lots more of these kind of biofabricated consumer products coming to market in the near future. And I am absolutely here for it. Yes. And I absolutely and wholeheartedly second any and all non-meat options. So that does it for us today, Just listeners. May you consider how animals figure into the future of your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us with a question or an episode suggestion, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Tuesday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.